Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. Members are now enjoying additional podcast content every Monday and Thursday, and David's written pieces on Wednesdays and Fridays. In addition to exclusive content, members will receive access to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience via private member feed, free access to live virtual webinars, and transcripts of each episode. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember. For a limited time, use code OCTOBERLAUNCH, all one word, and receive 10% off the regular price of $6.99 per month. Thank you and enjoy the episode. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Today we're going to talk a little bit about economics. We want to do these special podcasts periodically. And we're very fortunate to have with us today the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Barack Obama, professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, Jason Furman. How are you today, Jason? I'm great. How are you? Very good. I'm, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was just walking along the lovely Charles River. We also have with us today Edward Luce of the Financial Times. By the way, you should read Ed's column, take on the election last night. How are you doing, Ed? I'm very well in spite of last night. Thanks, David. Well, there were, you know, there were many good election results last night. It's just the media didn't cover them. Lots of interesting choices, won elections in cities across America, including uh, just across town here in Boston, uh, the first woman mayor elected and uh, the first person of color elected as mayor. So. There is some good news out there if one goes to seek it, but let's shift our focus a little bit. I want to start picking up on President Biden's trip to Europe last week, because at the G20 meeting, the president made some more progress on an idea originally, I think, proposed by uh, Secretary Yellen, and that is the idea of a 15% global minimum tax, which has won very quick wide acceptance around the world. And the tax is included in the Build Back Better package, I think, and is kind of a game changer in the way we go about taxing companies. At least that's how it appears to me. How does it appear to you? Absolutely. I think it's a real game changer. And it's just an amazing chicken and egg problem that I wasn't sure was ever going to be solved, but was. You know, the rest of the world looks at the United States sees our dysfunctional Congress and says, why should we agree to this with the United States when there's no way they can ever pass it through Congress? And then you have Congress that says, why should we do this for ourselves if no one else is doing it? 
And you needed both of those to happen sort of on a similar timetable with a similar degree of credibility um, for the other one to happen. And so, you know, looking like landing these two planes, I think that's both impressive with congressional negotiations, impressive diplomacy, and a, a good thing for revenue bases around the world. The estimates are that it could contribute $60 billion a year in revenue here in the United States. It will lift the average tax rate paid by companies. You have some faith in those numbers? Yeah, I think those are those are good estimates, certainly the ones for the U.S. when the Joint Committee on Taxation does them. And the important thing here also is the principle. For a long time, we were focused on making sure no one was ever double taxed. We did that so well that it meant a lot of income was never taxed um, at all. For a long time, it was a race to the bottom in terms of corporate rates. And this just reverses those and says, let's make sure you're at least taxed once. Let's make sure it's not a race to the bottom. If this works, could the rate go up to 20% in the future? I certainly would like to see that happen. It's the, you know, both what you get from this, but also just the new direction it moves us in. As a student of foreign policy, it's not that often the U.S. comes up with a big proposal that wins acceptance from the entire international community this quickly. And this one seems like a kind of, I don't know, one of the more significant international initiatives led by the U.S. in recent memory. You think I'm overstating that? I feel like I'm the type of person, David, that says things like that, because I just look at such a narrow subset of what happens internationally. So hearing you, who has a much greater breadth and looks at a lot of non-economic things, uh, makes me think that my own parochialism in this case was justified, because, yeah, that's certainly the way I look at it. And, and look, this is positive sum, right, for countries at the level of countries. They're all going to get more revenue out of this. Now, you can argue endlessly over, are you going to get a little bit more than that person? Is that person going to get a little bit more than you? But fundamentals were there. This is not you know, some irreconcilable conflict between countries. This is dividing up the spoils in a way. But I'm very encouraged by what both of you have to say, and with my less um, extent, much less extensive knowledge, fully agree with it. Therefore, it falls to me to introduce a slightly more discordant topic, um, which is also based on a tweet you sent yesterday, um, Jason, um, in response to the news that Democrats in states like New York were introducing um, a lifting of the cap on the state and local tax deduction, which I think, as you pointed out, and is well known, would disproportionately benefit the richest taxpayers. Given that most of the tax measures, other than this massive exception of the global minimum corporate tax, have been stripped from the larger bill, could you elaborate why you use the word obscene about this, yeah. about this move? Yeah. My fear six months ago was that we'd end up in a situation where the bill had, I'm making it up, 100 of gross tax increases, and then we would give back 60 of that in the form of SALT, state local deduction, and only end up with 40 net tax increases. What happened is that the bill has evolved, tax increase after tax increase has dropped, they're doing a surcharge, but they're only able to start it at $10 million. And, you know, I think it's great to tax people heavily over $10 million. But you know what? I think people at a million dollars could probably afford uh, the surcharge, too. And so as the tax increases got dialed back, 
the salt one didn't get dialed back. And so you're in a situation where for most high-income households, this was going to be a net tax cut. All in, all the tax increases plus salt, you would get a tax cut. I did the analysis for California. If you made up to $40 million a year, you would get a tax cut from the bill as a whole, including salt. And by the way, that's, that's $40 million in earnings. You might have a billion dollars of assets and have a mere $40, billion, $40 million of earnings. And so, yeah, I, I use the word obscene about every decade. And so this was the once in this decade I decided to use the word. Just as a follow-up, there was briefly a debate about um, taxing unrealized capital gains for the very super rich. I think it would have about 700 people would have been eligible for that tax. Uh, which was then dropped. And it was a sort of more modest version of what Elizabeth Warren's two cents, 2% tax on those over 50 million was during the Democratic primaries. This more modest version that's been dropped, as an economist, how do you evaluate its fairness and its efficiency? Because I I assume this is going to come back as part of the debate. Oh, I think this idea is now more in the debate than it's been I, in principle, like the idea of mark-to-market taxation. Rather than waiting until when people realize their gains, you figure out their gains every year. Um, There's a lot of trickiness um, around it, having the liquidity to pay it, how you measure it, how you reconcile, et cetera. I think it's going to take some time to work out all of those issues. It probably would have been hard to legislate on the timescale they were trying to legislate it on. But to spend two or three years and have a good proposal, absolutely. I didn't love the billion-dollar cutoff. It became a little bit more targeted at a very small group. I'd do a you know, $10 million cutoff for this one and um, see how it goes. But I think in principle, it's an it's a idea that's worth doing, but there's a lot of details. Jason, the revenue side of the Build Back Better package was in the news Again, uh, yesterday, the day before, when Senator Joe Manchin said, I don't know, I need to look at all this. There's some gimmicks here. I'm not sure that this really pays for itself. And of course, you know, some of Joe Manchin's criticisms you could take with a grain of salt or a pillar of salt. What do you think of the revenue side of the proposed Build Back Better package? It's just evolved in such a terrible way. And and this is what happens when you're choosing to legislate with no margin at all. I think that was the right choice, by the way. I think this is all way better than doing nothing. And they didn't have any other choice. The Republicans are unwilling to do anything um, in terms of revenue. So I think it's almost impossible to do something bipartisan. And to say we're going to give up and do nothing, I think, would have been a mistake, too. But When you're in a world where every single voter, every single senator is a marginal senator and every group of four House members is a marginal vote, um, you end up with some pretty weird, loopy things. You know, there's a corporate minimum tax on your book income. I'd much rather just raise the corporate rate. I think that's a much cleaner, simpler way to go. This is different than the international minimum tax we were talking about. On the individual side, the top rate, 39.6%. Who could possibly, you know, be against that on the Democratic side. Well, one person was, and now we don't have it. I agree with you. I think a lot of a lot of this has been obscene, and some of it has shown some um, a real intellectual dishonesty um, to the expense of the country. 
Let me just shift to where we're, we're doing this on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after the, the Fed Open Market Committee's had its six-week weekly meeting. And, and as expected, Jay Powell, you know, has announced a sharp a tapering off of, of the quantitative easing of the asset purchase. But there's also been a subtle shift in language that inflation is no longer just in transition, but expected to be in transition, which shows a little bit more ambivalence agnosticism by the Fed as to what, how you define temporary. You know, is temporary three months or is it two years? And, and so my question is, a few months back, our mutual friend, Larry Summers, made a quite stark and very controversial warning that we could be in for a period of much higher inflation or even worse, of hyperinflation. How do you evaluate Larry's warning now in light of what's been happening to the global supply chains and so forth? during the course of 2021? People are blaming supply a little bit too much for inflation. There's two types of supply chain problems. One is your supply chain gets worse because there's an electricity crisis in in China, factories shut down in Malaysia because of COVID, et cetera. That's part of what's going on. But another problem is you have a huge increase in demand and the supply chain just doesn't expand as quickly as you'd like it to expand. That second is what's going on with our ports. There's no problem with American ports. They have 19% more stuff going through them now than two years ago. They're just not good enough to accommodate as much as everyone um, wants to do. So a lot of the things that are being called supply chain problems are really demand problems, that people are buying 9% more goods than they normally buy. They've sustained that pace. And production just can't keep up with it. I think it is a combination of a supply problem and a demand problem. The Fed's forecasts throughout the year have been terrible. Their definition of transitory wasn't we're eventually going to get to two. They kept forecasting implicitly that inflation was going to be below 2% for the remainder of the year. They're basically saying starting next month, inflation is going to be 1.5%. That's what their forecasts have been throughout the year. In Jackson Hole, Jay Powell gave a speech that was basically like a polemic, the case for low inflation. Now you've seen them shifting. Transitory is being defined as, you know, it's going to take some time to get there, which I think is good. And they're talking, they sound much more uncertain and a little bit more like there can be errors on either side as opposed to making the brief. So I think that greater degree of uncertainty and a better forecast is important. Tapering is the right thing to do. I expect inflation to continue to be higher than they expect. There's a lot more shoes to drop in terms of shelter, wages. A lot of prices were held down by Delta over the last couple of months. They're going to start popping back up. Plus wholesale used car prices have been rising again. That's going to start showing up again in the CPI. All of that is going to mean, my guess is when tapering is done in June, they're going to go almost straight onto rate increases. Clearly, we are seeing for higher wage growth than we've seen for ages. And this is a very encouraging thing. And a lot of people have been looking out for it. But a lot of them, a lot of these gains are being eroded or wiped out even by, by the, this inflation. Are we, are we just taking inflation too crudely here? Do you think they're enjoying these wage gains more if you strip out um, certain items than we might be appreciating? Or, or is there 
is the middle class consumer feeling just as squeezed as they ever have? Yeah, the last year and a half haven't been uh, good for, for wages adjusted for inflation. You know, wage growth has gone up, but prices have gone up. And so far, prices are winning the race against wages. I think, if anything, the official data understates the problem because there have been a lot of quality deteriorations. You have to wait a long time to get the mattress you ordered. You can't go to the restaurant you wanted to go to, and American Airlines cancels 15% of its flights. All of those are de facto like inflation. They're a quality deterioration, but they're not recorded um, in the data. There's some people who say, oh, it's all in used cars. Um, first of all, it's not all in used cars. It's quite broad. Even if it was all in used cars, sure, not everyone buys a used car every year, but every fourth person does. And for them, it's four times as bad as what it is in the official data, uh, which only assumes you're buying one every four years. I'm making that number up. I don't know exactly what it assumes. So, yeah, I think it's real. I think so far prices are winning the race, and that's a, that's a real problem. Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. That's bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. Now back to the show. So following last night's elections, needless to say, there were many weighty pronouncements made by uh, commentators all of which uh, sought to draw analogies between the outcome last night and what it means for a year from now. But of course, a year is a long time, as you just indicated. Some of the inflation rate is demand-driven. The Fed policy may change in the course of that year. Some things may level out. Energy production, other kinds of things may catch up with demand. Uh, we, you know, we'll sort of get over the recovering from COVID hump a bit, and the economy may be stimulated somewhat from further recovery from COVID. How misleading do you think it is to say, well, the economic frustrations that may or may not have driven yesterday's outcome in places like Virginia are projectable to next year? And how hopeful or pessimistic are you about where we may be a year from now? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not the world's top political expert. No, you, you almost always lose seat in a midterm election. And so one's forecast, regardless of what happened yesterday, regardless of what happens over the next year, should be that the Democrats lose the House. But you shouldn't be overconfident and should have some standard error um, around that forecast. But David, you're right. Voters, the evidence is in these political prediction models that it's the economy in roughly the year before in the run-up to the election that matters. They don't remember what happened before that. So if inflation comes down, if even in the best scenario, wage growth continues to be high and price inflation comes down, we make the rest of the way to maximum employment. That's a real possibility. And voters would feel quite good about that and would forgive and forget any inflation they experienced the year before, if that happens. Ed and I were going back and forth messaging last night, trying to discuss what was going on. So, Ed, you may have a follow up on this. Okay? What, 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 what's your question? 
Yeah, I mean, it's about the labor force participation rate. I mean, fewer people as a share of eligible working age population are in work than has been for 50 years because of the pandemic. But it sparked this whole debate about um, people moving jobs, which is a good sign because it shows they have confidence that they can command higher wages and they don't need to cling on to jobs they don't want. But also people dropping out of the labor force, which isn't such a good sign because it's uh, potentially a more inflationary one. Where do you come down on the debate about whether this is a temporary hit to labor force participation that we're going to see corrected pretty quickly, or whether there's something deeper going on here? And this, of course, does key in to how good people are going to be feeling economically in the next year. I don't know. Uh, To me, that's maybe the single biggest mystery in the U.S. economy right now is why when you have more than 10 million job openings, you have all these people that don't have jobs and that don't have incomes and they're not getting unemployment insurance anymore. Why aren't they taking them? I tend to prefer explanations that if something fundamental hasn't changed, that something else big won't change. And so that give it a couple of months, either the fear of the virus subsides or the extra cash balance people had subsides or their dream job they're just waiting for finally comes along. So I, I tend to think that this is temporary and that labor markets will be pretty well recovered at some point a year from now. But I admit that's just optimism and faith. There's nothing um, in the data I can point you to that would justify what I just said, because we don't understand the data. We did, I didn't predict this was going to happen. And so I'm not going to tell you I know what's going to happen next. Is this something that we're seeing in other wealthy economies? We are seeing it, but we're seeing it much less than in the United States. In the UK, for example, job openings are up just like they are in the United States, but they're up about half as much as they are in the United States. And the unemployment rate in the UK is low. They kept people connected to jobs in a way that we didn't here. So the dramatic decline in employment is something that you're not seeing in any of the other uh, major advanced economies. To some degree, Canada's closest to the United States. The increase in openings and the sort of rearrangement of the economy and growing pains associated with it, that you're seeing everywhere. So I talked a little bit about the uh, revenue side of Build Back Better. That seems like a legislative package that's likely to uh, come up for a vote before Thanksgiving, likely, I think, even to pass. Let's assume for a moment that the package looks roughly like the one the president said it was, $1.75 trillion, and includes the elements it did. I mean, it may include some things on prescription drugs and may include even some family leave. There's some discussion about that. Let's assume it's roughly like that. And there is roughly a trillion dollar infrastructure package. That's quite a big pop. You know, it it makes the total amount of uh, sort of the bills passed in the first year of of Biden approach five trillion dollars. What do you think the near term consequences of that? Again, I'm sort of looking at it with an eye towards 2022, because I consider that a bit of a consequential election. Are people going to feel this? Is this nearly $3 trillion, something that's going to hit people in the pocketbook soon? Or are they just going to see a bunch of signs that say, coming soon, a new highway to your neighborhood, and then nothing will happen for a few years? 
Yeah, it's very spread out over time. The, the main things that are right away are the child tax credit and some subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. And they themselves are continuations of what's there now. They're not something new on top of it. Um, there's some Medicare benefit for hearing that, frankly, I don't think is a particularly important public policy. But, you know, if your goal was to maximize your electoral fortunes, it's not an unreasonable goal for a political party to have. It might be well designed for that. I'm not quite sure when that goes into effect. Maybe that would be something new they could point to. But um, again, I don't even know if it goes into effect next year. I can't imagine how either political party thinks it would benefit them for voters to be able to hear them better. But I, 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 maybe I'm just a little cynical. Ed, we've got three minutes here. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to go back to the Fed, but there is a big Biden decision coming up about whether to replace Jay Powell or keep him on. Now, I know this is a political decision and your skills as an economist don't necessarily give you greater insight you know, than anybody else's. But it's a pretty important decision because it coincides, you know, with what is clearly a turn in uh, American monetary policy and some greater uncertainty about the future. Does this suggest that in spite of the fact he's a Republican and was appointed by Trump, that Jay Powell is likelier to be kept on than uh, replaced? I think he's likelier to be kept on than replaced. He is very much the date been in pretty much the same place as the White House has been on the big monetary issues. He has indicated some deferentialness on financial reform. They'll need a slate of candidates that fit together on regulation of and slot for governor that are fully appealing. I think there are other great choices. I think Lyle Brainerd would be a great choice as well. But if you're asking me to make a prediction, I would predict Jay Powell as part of a slate and the rest of the slate is you know, stronger progressive credentials. Let me take that question a step further. To the average American, will it make a difference whether it's Lael or whether it's Powell or is it likely that whomever is selected as the next chair is going to do the same thing? There's probably some differences between them, especially if we're in the world of the unexpected. And at some point in the next four years, we're going to be in the world of the unexpected. Right now, it's very clear the path they're on for the next six months. How do they, what do they end up doing a year and a half from now? Uh, Different people might make different choices. And, you know, but one good news is I think the Fed in some ways has been too big a part of our economic policy and fiscal policy has been too small a part of it. And that balance has been changed a little bit. And people in Congress, you know, sometimes messing stuff up, sometimes too big, sometimes too late, too little, et cetera. But, you know, more from there, I think is a good thing because they're capable of solving more problems um, than the Fed can with its more limited set of goals. Jason, it's always great to talk to you. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Uh, Ed, of course, same to you. For those of you who are out there listening to us, we've got a lot of interesting things upcoming. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more on that. You can also click there, sign on, become a member, support more of this. We want to expand the economic programming we've got, and we're going to do that. Uh, so follow that space for more on that front as well. In the meantime, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay healthy out there. Bye-bye.